0: Amen. Lord, that's our heart to give you all the glory, all the honor, all the praise. You're such a great and an awesome God. We pray now as we go to this time in your word and and spend a few moments just sharing what we're thankful for. I pray that you would inhabit this time, Lord, that you would be glorified through it. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat. If you need a Bible, please raise your hand. If you have your Bible, we'll be looking at Numbers chapter 5. Um, even though we're a new church, we do have a few traditions already. And one of them is that every year on Wednesday night before Thanksgiving, I'd just like to take a few minutes and just in a few sentences, anybody who wants to, um, I just want you to share what you're thankful for. And just get up. I know everybody's going to be all shy. It's okay. We'll just take a few minutes and I'd just like you just to stand up and say, hey, I'm thankful for what God's doing in my life. I'm thankful for my family. I'm thankful for my wife. I'm thankful for whatever it might be. Okay? So don't be shy. Somebody go first. I'm going to call one of the pastors. Somebody has to seven. Okay. Um, I'm just, I'm a All right. Uh, but I just want to thank the
1: Lord for sharing my house. He's had less money, more than I need to start the seven minutes of Hmm. Amen. Ron. Amen. Amen. I'm thankful that my brother is home for my life and that he's with his family. So a... Amen. Amen. Manny. Yeah, I just, I just want to say that I am so thankful that I know the Lord. and You know, I just cannot imagine going through life. Personally, like, in my life, that's what I Amen. Anybody else? Don't be shy.
0: You guys stand around and talk for two hours after church. Um I think there's so many things but I think for the file for
1: my mom, by the way. Thanks, Mom. <laughs> Anybody else? Mike. Amen. 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 Praise the Lord. Anybody else? One of those babies better stand up. You always get married like two weeks, right?
0: <laughs> what do you think before, bro? <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Just got back
1: from their honeymoon. Anybody else? Before we look at the word, speak now or forever hold your peace. All
0: right. Well, turn your Bibles to Numbers chapter 5. We're going to continue our verse-by-verse study through the Old Testament. Again, if you don't have a Bible, please raise your hand. Manny will give you one, and you can either borrow that for tonight, and if you need to take one home, please consider it our gift. Take it with you and, and read it at home. We'll continue through Numbers. Well, let's pray one more time for the Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank You for Your Word, and I, I thank You, Lord, for just what You're doing here in Santa Cruz, and... I thank you for all the people that have given their lives to the Lord to you over the last year here, and just the transformation we're seeing, Father. We just thank you and we praise you. We know, Lord, without you, we can do nothing. Father, tonight as we look at your word, I pray that you would be our teacher, that your Holy Spirit would move among us in a mighty way. Father, conform us more to your image. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. amen. By the way, of quick review. I'm not going to take as much time on it, but Numbers, again, that's a book that when people hear that book, they they, they oh no, uh, isn't that just a bunch of lists? Isn't that just a, a bunch of numbering of the people? And I think Numbers gets a bad name because they call it Numbers when they probably shouldn't. And I've said this before that they call it Numbers because twice in the book of Numbers the, the children of Israel are numbered. In Genesis, we saw the creation we saw man fall away from God. In Exodus, they were in bondage and God delivered them out of bondage. In Leviticus, they were camped at Mount Sinai and He gave them the... Uh, you know, the, the work of atonement, and he gave them the, the rules to live by. And now we get to Numbers, and this is where we're going to see them fall, sadly, into disobedience. And a better name for Numbers would be in the wilderness, or the book of murmurings, as it's called by some, because what we'll see is they take a, what should have been an 11-day journey, and it becomes 40 years of wandering in the wilderness because they're not listening to God. And we can do the same thing in our lives. Sometimes we wonder why it takes so long for things to happen, and sometimes because God's teaching us patience, and sometimes it's because we're wandering around in the wilderness and we're not listening to God. And so we see that example here in the book of Numbers. We see the calling to serve. We saw God's divine order. Those you remember from two weeks ago, three weeks ago, in Numbers chapter 2, that it, it talks about how they're supposed to camp, and when you read it, it seems kind of mundane, but When you put it all together, what were they camped in? What was the shape of what they were camped in? They are camped in the cross. When God the Father looked down on Israel, as they moved through the wilderness, they were camped in a cross. If you weren't here for it, grab the tape. The tapes are free. They're in the back. Help yourself. They were camped in tents, which are temporary dwelling places. It was encamped in the cross. Where did God's glory dwell? Where was it? In the tabernacle, Right. Where the God, and God's glory dwells where now? In, our, in us, in the person of the Holy Spirit. We live in tents, right? Temporary dwelling places. They were headed to the land of promise, just as we are headed to the land of promise, to heaven. Then we saw the calling to serve in chapter 3 and 4, really, and how he gave them specific tasks. And we talked about the fact that each family had their own task. And as you look at it, you might think, well, what do I care about what the Mararites are supposed to do, or the Kohathites? But God was showing, I believe very clearly, that we all have a calling upon our lives. And whether it's a calling to, to serve as the priest themselves or to serve and be the ones that, that work with the furnishings or the coverings or the, or the support, it's all necessary. And we talked last week about how if the Mararites hadn't done what God had called them to do, they couldn't have set up the tabernacle if they had just left a few boards behind. We're all called. God saved us to use us. He didn't save us so we could just, you know, be like the Dead Sea, an inlet and no outlet. He saved us that He might use us for His glory. And so as we've been going through Numbers, we saw the calling, and the calling was placed upon the Levites. And why the Levites? Again, really quickly, it was supposed to be the firstborn, but what happened? The firstborn, when, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, he comes down from the mountain, and what are they doing? They're having a party, Remember? And they've got a golden calf, and they're dancing, some of them, without their clothes on, and they're, they're drunken, and they're just out of control. And when Moses got to the bottom of the mountain, he said, all of you who are on the Lord's side, come to me. And every single one of the Levites came to him. And that's when God said, no longer is it the firstborn, from now on it's the Levites that I'm going to use. What that tells me is that when God calls, he uses those who respond. If we respond to the calling that we have in our lives, God will use us in a mighty way. The sad part is that while we're all called, we don't all respond. And sadly, the firstborn missed out on a great blessing of serving in the tabernacle. Remember, the Levites got to camp closest to the tabernacle. And it's true that those who serve God, and it doesn't have to be full-time service, but I mean those who are serving Him, those who are responding to the calling on their life, they're the ones closest to Him, just like the Levites were able to camp closest to the tabernacle. So we get this morning, or this morning, where am I? We get this evening... Numbers chapter 5 and in the first four chapters we saw the numbering and the organization and the way that they went through the wilderness but now we're going to move from looking at the physical to looking at the spiritual and as we look at the spiritual I want us to see very clearly that God has a plan for us to be organized as we serve him God is the Bible says the Holy Spirit is not the author of confusion if you go into a church and there's a bunch of confusion that's not the Lord The Holy Spirit's not going to interrupt Himself, right? But just as there is to be order, God also desires that we walk in holiness before Him, that there be purity in our walk before God. They've been delivered from bondage, they've been numbered among God's people, they're encamped in the cross, they're dwelling in His presence, but now He says, to remain in My presence, you're going to need to pursue holiness. Now sadly, here's what I see a lot of in the church today, and maybe it's applied to my life at different times. And but for the grace of God, it could apply to my life again. But don't make this mistake. Sadly, many people today equate God's grace with God's permission to sin. You know, God loves me and he's given me the get out of hell free card and I'm going to heaven and my name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life so I can just party and live like the world because I'm going to heaven anyway. And what he's going to tell them here is that's not his heart. He's not going to say, I didn't deliver you out of bondage so you could be partying around the golden calf. We saw God's heart about that already in a previous chapter. But now we're going to see that God is calling them by His grace not only to salvation, and that freedom from sin is not freedom to sin. The fact that we've been freed from sin doesn't give us the freedom to sin. Now, I want to make this really balanced tonight, okay? Some people get so heavy on the law and keeping the rules that they exclude God's grace. But there's another danger. There's a danger that is so heavily on grace that we ignore holiness. And we ignore walking in purity before God. And we just oh hey, I'm saved, whatever. But it says in God's word in Luke 44, Luke 1144, for I am the Lord your God, Leviticus, excuse me. I am Lord you God. You shall therefore consecrate yourselves and you shall be holy for I am holy. Why is it the people don't walk in holiness, I believe one of the biggest problems is no fear of God. No fear of God. No passion for God. Again, God is part of who I am. He's just a little piece of my life over here. He's Sunday morning for an hour and Wednesday night once in a while. And you know, but the rest of the week belongs to me, and that's kind of where I'm at with the Lord. But God so clearly wanted them to camp in his presence. If you'll remember last week that they when did the camp move? When did it move? When God's glory moved. And so when they woke up in the morning, the Levites who were in charge of moving the camp, the first thing they had to do was look up and make sure that the cloud was still hovering over the tabernacle. Because if the cloud had moved, then they needed to move. And that needs to be our heart, that when we wake up in the morning, the first thing we ought to do is look up. And the Levites kept their eyes on the cloud all day long because as soon as it moved, it could be there for a day or two days or a year. And whenever it moved, they had to be ready to pick up the tabernacle and go. And may we have that same heart to follow the cloud, to follow the Lord, to have our eyes on Him. And God desires that we walk in purity before Him. First Peter chapter 1 says, Therefore, gird up your loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, not conforming yourself to former lust as in the ignorance, as in your ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. In Romans chapter 6 it says, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? What does it say? Certainly not. Certainly not. How then shall we who died to sin, how, how shall we who have died to sin live any longer in it? In Psalm 66, 18, it says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. How many of you know that if you have unconfessed sin and you're in rebellion against God, he doesn't hear you pray unless you're praying confession? That's a fact. That's what it says in that verse. It says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, I've chosen to walk away from God. And we're going to see that tonight in Numbers chapter 5. Okay, we're going to see that sin has consequences. They've been delivered from bondage, but God now instructs His people to live holy and set apart lives, that they may continue to dwell in His presence. The purity of God's people is to be pursued with great passion. Again, because we're Christians, doesn't mean that now we just do whatever. I want, again, there to be balance, but I don't want you to walk out of here saying, well, I've got to keep all these rules or God won't love me. That's not true. God loves you the same, no matter what you do. But the difference is we miss out on His blessing. We miss out on being in His presence. We miss out on all those joyous things that we can enjoy if we walk closely to Him. So real quickly, here's the outline for tonight. Three, three points. Number one, we're going to see the cleansing of the camp that sin produces separation. Number two, we're going to see that confession produces restoration, that restores us to right fellowship. And then lastly, we'll see that your sin will find you out, that God alone is judge, and there's no sin that we can hide from Him. So we're going to see cleansing of the camp, that sin separates us, confessing uh, produces restoration, and then our sin will find us out. So let's begin in verse one, looking at the cleansing of the camp, that sin indeed does produce. Separation. Look at verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel that they put out of the camp every leper, everyone who has a discharge, and whoever becomes defiled by a corpse. Those of you who are here, when we went through Leviticus, we addressed every one of these. I'm going to take a moment to do that. But God's glorious presence, where did it dwell? What does it say in this verse? Where is His glory? Where is it? It's in the camp. Alright? Now, can God and His glory, can Almighty God and sin be in the same place? What's the answer? The answer is no. God is holy, perfect, and just. He cannot have sin in His presence. That's why there will be no sin in heaven. Amen? If God allowed one sin in heaven, He'd have earth part Two, Right? We'd have the same problems in heaven we have on earth. If he let one sin in. So there can be no sin in heaven. And so, God dwelt in the camp, and He said, if I dwell in the camp... There can be no leprosy here. There can be no deformity. There can be no, uh, again, physical... These physical things all point to spiritual sin, okay? I want you to understand that clearly, that every one of these physical things is pointing to a spiritual truth. All right. so Leviticus 26, it says, I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. And then he says again, Be ye holy, for I am holy. So he speaks to them and he tells them that they need to be clean. Now, understand that in the Old Testament, especially in Israel, clean, cleanliness and uncleanness, isn't that a heavy subject with the Jews? Didn't they talk about what kind of foods they could eat, right? They had clean food and unclean food. They had a clean way to dress and an unclean way to dress. They had a clean place, clean places they could walk and unclean places they could not walk. They couldn't walk in Gentile territory. They wouldn't walk where the Samaritans were. You know what, everything was clean or unclean. But I want you to understand that that was to teach them a spiritual lesson. To get them to understand that there's a difference between those things that are in God's will and those things that are contrary to God's will. And so he, he's going to compare these diseases and this defilement to sin and he compares health and cleanliness to holiness. He uses these things to teach them spiritual truth. So the first thing there is leprosy. Now, leprosy in the Bible is a type of what? Sin. What does leprosy do? Leprosy starts small under the skin. If you guys are in Leviticus, remember that? And you can't see it initially. But then it gets to the point where it comes above the skin. And once it breaks the skin, it begins to spread. And it's highly contagious And in biblical times, there was no cure. If you had leprosy, it was a death warrant. You were done. And what happens is, he says, if someone's in the camp and they have leprosy, you need to move them out of the camp. Now, from a physical perspective, this would say, well, this is to save everybody from dying, because if you leave a leper in the camp, everyone's going to die. So a leper had to be moved out of the camp, and leprosy was a heavy-duty disease. Again, it would start small, but then it would grow, and it would get out of control, and eventually it would completely and totally destroy the person who had it. It would get, it would get just to the point where your bones would start getting soft, and then your fingernails and toenails would disappear, and your, your gums would start to recede, and your teeth would start to fall out, and your fingers and your toes and even your nose would fall off. And then your flesh would begin to rot away. I mean, it was grotesque. And people that had it would cover up because they looked so vile, they would want to hide. And the disease was so heavy that that they were commanded by law that if somebody who didn't have leprosy came within a hundred yards of them, they had to scream at the top of their lungs, unclean, unclean. Now those are the physical things that leprosy did, but what's even more brutal is what leprosy did spiritually because when you had leprosy you could not be around anybody so you could not go into the tabernacle and worship you could not be around other people you could not have any fellowship you were separated because of your leprosy and that's what sin does sin separates us from god because god is holy and perfect and he cannot have sin in his presence so sin separates us and we have to be removed from him so what's the result of leprosy Again, a leprosy that has no cure. Once you had it, you were doomed. It resulted in isolation and humiliation because you had to cry out, unclean, unclean. Now, the second thing it says there is a discharge. Now, I talked about how leprosy is a picture of the sins that everybody can see, and a discharge, which for the most part speaks of venereal disease in this case, okay? but also other things that, that can come along with that. But it's about sin that nobody else knows about. If you have leprosy, you're not fooling anybody. Anybody who sees you, oh, you've got leprosy. But if you have a venereal disease, or if you've got a hidden sin of some kind, maybe people don't see it on the outside, but what God is clearly telling the people there, that you cannot have them in the camp, because they will still infect everyone around them. It may be sin that's hidden from men, but it's not hidden from God. And the heavy-duty part about this is these hidden sins... The only way that they could be banished from the camp is they'd have to confess to somebody that they had it. Otherwise, they would stay where they were and they would continue to infect everybody around them. It would still impact those around them. And then lastly, those defiled by a corpse. If they touched a dead body, then they were banished and they could not stay within the camp. So, what does this dead body thing have to do with anything? What, why would they? So you go to a funeral and you have to leave the camp. Now, we'll talk about the... The way that they were restored in just a moment, but if you touch a dead body, you could not be in the tabernacle. You could not be in the camp. What does that mean about for us today? How does that apply to our lives? Well, the Bible says tells us very clearly that we are not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, and that the Bible says that people that don't know Christ, we are to love them, but they are spiritually what? They're dead. And so, I used to tell the youth group, you know, girls in the youth group would, would bring some unsaved guy to youth group, but he's cute and got a nice car, you know, I mean, that happened all the time. And I'd say, would you drag a corpse into youth group and say, here's my date? I mean, would you go down to the morgue and, you know, pull in those drawers out and put a tux on them and take that guy with you to the prom? I mean, they'd throw you in a loony bin, right? But we would never do it physically, but it's even crazier, it's more out of control to do it spiritually. The Bible says we're not to be unequally old together with them believers. And if you start hanging out with dead people, you're going to start smelling like them. I used to tell people, you, you become like who you hang out with. You want to know what kind of person you are? Look at the people you hang out with. Because you become like them. Bad company corrupts good morals or iron sharpens iron. Christian brothers and sisters hanging out together. So they were not to be contaminated by the world. They're not to have broken fellowship from the Father. They would then have an ineffective witness. So what's the result of sin? We see that it's separation. It says there in verse 3, You shall put out both male and female. You shall put them outside the camp, that they may not defile their camps in the midst which I dwell. The key is that God dwells there. And because God dwells there, there cannot be sin there. You cannot have unchecked sin, unconfessed sin, unrepentant sin. So sin, what does sin produce? It produces loneliness here and now. What does sin do? It breaks up marriages. Now, are we all sinners? How many of you are sinners? Raise your hand. Okay. Well, Pastor Dave, you're killing me because I'm a sinner. All right, but we'll talk about that in a minute. I want you to understand, though, that sin does have consequences. I think we can swing so far over onto the side of grace that we can say, okay, well, my sin's forgiven, and that's true, and I'm going to heaven, and that's true, but sin still has consequences. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. And so sin has consequences here and now. It breaks up marriages. It breaks up relationships. It has broken fellowship with the Father for believers. And for those who are unsaved, unrepentant sin results in eternal banishment, separation, loneliness, and suffering for all eternity. And here's the reality. Whether the sin is obvious or not, sin is sin. Whether everybody can see it or only God can see it, it's still sin. And, and I think often in the church today, we may be little less likely to have the, the sin that everybody can see real readily. We're pretty good at hiding our sin, right? We, you know, hey, I'm, I, I go to church. I can't be, you know, I, I got to keep this on the low, you know, hey, right? We might protect each other for, about our, our hidden sin. You know, the outward sins would be things that were very evident that everybody would see and it would be very clear. But what kind of hidden sins are there that, that men can struggle with and women can struggle with? You know, secret drug, alcohol, and addictions. Being greedy and being driven by your, your pursuit of, of the almighty buck. Harmoring anger or resentment or bitterness. What about pride? Thinking of others, you know, thinking of yourself being better than other people and esteeming yourself. What about having an affair? Well, my wife doesn't know. My wife doesn't know. Hey, what she doesn't know won't hurt her. I've had guys tell me that. Uh, know what she doesn't know will destroy her and it'll destroy your marriage and it'll destroy your walk with the Lord uh, what about pornography epidemic it's an epidemic I want to encourage you guys have if you have internet service at home have filtered internet service you might say well pastor Dave I've never struggled with pornography God bless you that's great do you, if you don't ever want to have that struggle just put a filter on there and you won't have to worry about it amen well, it might cost a few more dollars. So be it. Put it on there, right? Because the problem with the pornography—you know—that more more money is made from pornography on the internet than anything else on the internet. That's the number one industry. I, I I read something where it's in the billions and billions and billions of dollars. And the reason is, it's a guy who would never go down to a a strip club because he would be seen by everybody walking in, and he'd be afraid that somebody he knows might see him. But he can sit at his house with the door shut and the shades drawn and his wife in bed and click on the internet. And nobody's going to know. I want to encourage you, if you're struggling with that, go to another brother and confess what you're struggling with and have him pray for you and keep you accountable. Amen? Hidden sin. Don't, I, hey, God know, does God know you're struggling with it? The enemy wants you to keep it quiet. Just don't tell anybody. Just keep doing it. Keep your walk with God not being effective as it could be. Just keep struggling. Yeah, just stay right where you're at. You'll be ashamed if you let people know. Hey, everybody in this room is a sinner. Nobody's going to be surprised when you tell them you're a sinner too. Amen? Nobody's going to go, really, you? Oh, forget it, I can't talk to you anymore. Right? I mean, we're going to be praying for each other. I I want to confess that I'm a sinner. And while we think our sin is hidden, God sees it all. And the result, again, is broken fellowship. Some of you might say, you know, my prayer life just is so dry. Let me ask you a question. Do you have hidden sin that you have not confessed to God that you're just hanging on to? Deal with it. Amen? Again, this doesn't mean we're going to stop sinning altogether. But the difference is, here's the difference between a spiritual mature Christian and someone who's new in their faith. This is what I believe is one of the biggest keys. The distance between sin and repentance in time. As a, someone who's mature in your faith, is, I mean, it's seconds. It's nanoseconds sometimes, Right? The words come out of your mouth, oh, Lord, forgive me. Right? Your heart's broken over sin, and you flee from it. But sometimes when we're in a backslidden state, we just continue on in our sin and continue on in our sin, and we just disregard the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And so we see here that sin separates us from God. You want to be close to the Lord? Flee youthful lust. Don't give excuses for the sin that's in your life. Say, so you know what? I, I need to flee from that. I'm not going to walk in that anymore. Lord, help me. Because without Him, we can do what? Nothing. It's not trying really I'm going to try really hard to quit this habit that I have. Whatever, you know, I'm going to try really hard. Oh, that, you're probably not going to get too far. Who lives in us? The Holy Spirit. God lives within us. We're not God, but He lives in us. That same God that lives in us can He help us and deliver it from anything we're struggling with? Amen? Greater is He that is in me than he that is in the world. I don't care what it is. Oh, it's just too overwhelming. Well, My God spoke the stars into the sky. He can take care of my, you know, my addiction to cigarettes. Amen? My struggle with whatever it is. My pride, my anger, my bitterness. God can handle that. And we need to trust Him. We need to turn to Him. Verse 4. It says, and the children of Israel did so, and they put them outside of the camp as the Lord spoke to Moses, so the children of Israel did. So they responded in obedience, and they took the lepers, and they took those with the discharge, and they took those that had touched the bodies, and they moved them outside of the camp. Now imagine being one of those being put outside of the camp. What would it feel like to be, okay, come on, you're out of here. Go. Go. And you get and you're outside of the camp and the camp starts to move and they're moving and God's glory is there and you're standing on the outside looking in. How many of you ever felt that way in your walk with the Lord? You're you're blowing it and you feel like you're over here. You know, I'm not as close to God as I used to be. If you're not as close to God as you used to be, who moved? Amen? Did God move or did you move? God's still there. We walk away. And they're banished from the camp. Now I want you to see something though. God is a God of grace. Amen? He can restore these guys. Restore these men and women back into right fellowship, back to encamped with Him and near to Him and walking near His Spirit and walking in the fullness of His Spirit. And so how does He do that? So they're being put outside the camp and they couldn't return until they were cleansed. So how were they cleansed? Let me just give you a couple quick things. Leprosy. In the Bible... How were lepers healed? There's only one way that lepers were ever healed in the Bible. Not one way, but there's only one person that ever healed a leper. Who was it? Jesus. Now, I believe this is a picture of an unbeliever. Who's the only one that can bring an unbeliever from the sin of leprosy into new life? Who's the only one? Jesus Christ. Buddha can't get him there, Hare Krishna can't get him, you know, the, the, the following Hare Krishna's beliefs, right? There was no person Hare Krishna, but following the Hare Krishna beliefs, following the beliefs of Islam, or whatever it might be, there's only, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by Him, and to me, the fact that the lepers, the only lepers that were ever healed were once healed directly by Jesus Christ, tells me that that's a picture of those who are in the bondage of sin who need to be saved because Jesus is the only way. Now, what about the people with the discharge? You know what had to happen? For them to get back into fellowship, their disease had to go away. The flow had to stop. Then they had to wait seven days. Then they had to go make sacrifice. And as soon as they did, they could go back into the camp. So, how does it stop? They stop the behavior. They just, okay, I'm going to flee from that. I'm not going to do that anymore. And then they have seven days of waiting upon the Lord, and then they had to make sacrifice. And when they bought sacrifice, it was the, the atoning sacrifice. It was a ram, and they killed it, right? Because without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness for sin. This, is, I believe, is a picture of a believer like us and we're, we, we fall into sin and we choose to be rebellious against God and we choose to walk out of His presence because that's really what we're doing when we say, God, this is more important to me than you. This girl that I'm sleeping with that's, you know, my girlfriend, and we're not, I'm just choosing that this is more important to me than that and that's what I'm doing. And I, Whatever. You saved me, you said I'm going to heaven, so I'm going to do it. And you know what? There needs to come a time we say, you know what? I'm not going to do that anymore. Lord, forgive me and restore me to a right relationship with you. And you don't come with a a sacrifice of an animal anymore, but you come with a repentant heart. And you get on your knees and say, Lord, forgive me. Will He forgive us when we ask Him? Every single time. No matter what you've done, where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. You can take a million steps away from God. It's only what? It's only one step back. No matter how far you've wandered away from the Lord, He's right there. He loves you. You take one step. Oh, welcome home, my child. He'll embrace you. He loves you. And then finally, what about the corpse? Well, the same thing had to happen. They had to, seven days of being isolated, get away from the dead bodies, stop hanging on to the dead bodies, be isolated for seven days, and make sacrifice. So I love this. Now, one last thing, and then we'll move on. When Jesus was on earth, I want you to, I want you to see something here. They were not allowed to be around lepers. Jesus touched lepers, right? They were not to be near a person with an issue of blood. And how did the woman get healed with the issue of blood? What did she do? She touched what? She touched Jesus, right? They weren't to touch dead people. Who went in and touched dead people and raised them from the dead? Jesus did. Now, the people couldn't do it because it would defile them. But Jesus came to take the sins of all mankind upon himself. And he's perfect, holy God. And he would go and touch them and take their sin upon himself when he went to the cross and said, to die it's finished. And he cleansed them all. That's the God we serve. So the Old Testament shows their desperate need and Jesus came and fulfilled it. These lepers can't be healed. Jesus can do it. The guy with the discharge, he can't help it. He's, he's, he's banned No, nope, the Lord can touch him and take that issue of blood away just right now. Well, the person who's, t- who's dead, he can raise him from the dead. That's the God we serve. How much do we have to be thankful for on Thanksgiving? Amen? We serve a risen and living Savior, not a dead God. And He could touch them and not be defiled because, again, He was coming to take their sin upon Himself. So we see, one, that sin separates. Number two, confession produces restoration. Look at verses 5-10. through Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel when a man or a woman commits any sin that men commit in unfaithfulness against the Lord, and that person is guilty, that he shall confess the sin which he has committed, he shall make restitution for his trespass in full, plus one-fifth of it, and give it to the one he has wronged. So the first thing that has to happen is for there to be restoration, there must be repentance. For us to be restored to right fellowship with God, there must be repentance. I want you to see something here. It says, any sin that a man commits against another man, he commits against God. Do you know, I try to tell my kids this, they're not fully getting it yet, I'm trying. I tell them, when you you hit your brother, you're sinning against God. When you cheat on your taxes, you're sinning against God. When you are, you know, screaming at that guy on the freeway that cuts you off, You're sinning against God. And when we sin against another man, we are sinning against God. And so what he's going to tell them here, that for there to be restoration, there first must be confession, but there also must be restitution. And what that means is that we need to pray and ask God to forgive us, but we also must go and make things right with the person we sinned against. Oh, we don't like that part. Oh, that one's not, oh, wait a minute. I I, I didn't hear that. Uh Right? Isn't that the hardest thing to do? Isn't it a lot easier to come to the Lord and say, Lord, please forgive me? Please forgive me for, you know, shooting the neighbor's barking dog. Please forgive me, Lord. Right? Really hard to go next door and go, "Um, you know how uh, Sparky disappeared? Well, when you were on vacation, I shot him. And here's Sparky and, and Sparky Jr. Here's two dogs to replace the one I shot, right? I mean, that's God's highest. It's not just that we say, God, I'm sorry, and that's, that God wants us to do that. But what kind of testimony do we have if we ask God to forgive us, but we don't bring restoration with the people around us? we still have got a blown testimony with that person for the way we've treated them. And, we, and you know what? That needs to be more evident in the church today. We need to not just pray and ask God to forgive us, but we need to go to the person we've offended and say, will you please forgive me? It doesn't happen enough. It's too easy just to forget about it. And you know what it says there in verse 7? It says that they may confess the sin that he committed. And it says because what? And and add a fifth to it. But but back in verse 6 it says because he is guilty. And the word there for guilty is he's convicted. When you're convicted of sin, God desires that you go and you confess and you repent. Repent means what? To what? To turn. Repent means I'm going this way, and now I'm going this way. It's a 180. That's what repent means. Repent doesn't mean I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry, Justice, for blasting in the chops, but I'm going to do it again, right? That's not sorry. Sorry would be, you know, driving him down to the hospital, getting his jaw worked on, paying for it, and then going to his house and, you know, blending up his meal so he can suck him through the straw, because I broke his jaw, right? I mean... That's repentance. And then then never doing it again and asking Him to forgive me. But too often we think repentance is just, I'm sorry. That's not repentance. To turn, to go in another direction. And if we want to see God do great things in our life, if we want to see restoration in our relationship with Him and our relationship with others, there must be confession. And then it says in verse 8, but if a man has no relative to whom restitution may be made for the wrong. The restitution for the wrong must go to the Lord for the priest, in addition to the ram of the atonement, which the atonement is made for him. So he's saying, you need to make restitution. And notice he said you pay 120%. You pay what you owe him plus 20%. Why? Because you need to understand that sin has consequences. And that when you wrong somebody, you should give them more back than what you took from them. You know, if you, if you steal something from somebody, you need to repay them 120%. If you, if, you take, if you borrow something from somebody and you break it, buy them the next better model when you take it back, right? Hey, I broke your you know $90 chainsaw, so I bought you $150 one here, right? Isn't that what the Lord would have us do? And it says here, you pay back 120% because they needed to understand that their sin indeed did have consequences. They needed to make things right with people. But He's not letting them off the hook because they could have said, well, all right, oh, the guy died. You know, the guy next door, Sparky's owner, died. So now I'll ask God to forgive me and that guy's not there anymore so I don't have to make restitution. (laughs) It's all good, right? I mean, no, (laughs) no, no, no. God doesn't want us to do that. What does He say? He says, if that guy's not there, take it down to the church. Now, don't be bringing Sparky down to church, okay? I don't want any dogs in here. But, you know, the reality is that if you can't, pay the person back, then you give it to the Lord. You bring it to God. And it says that God will use that to care for the priests. Verse 9 and 10. And then it says, "...every offering of all the holy things of the children of Israel, which they bring to the priest, shall be his, and every man's holy thing shall be his. Whatever any man gives to the priest shall be his." So, when we want to make restitution with another... It's a two-parter, guys. We must first ask God to forgive us, and then we must go to the person that we've harmed, and we must make restitution with them. Don't just go say you're sorry to your buddy and not repent before God, and don't just repent before God and not go to the one who you've harmed and make it right. We need to do both. It's not easy, I know. Imagine what a testimony it would be if every Christian just started doing that. Can you imagine if you went to work and you told your boss, you know... About three weeks ago I left a half an hour early. So I'm gonna work an hour and a half late today. Please forgive me. I'm sorry, it will never happen again. Boss would fall out of his chair. Right? I asked God to forgive me. Will you please forgive me? You can dock my pay. I'll work an hour and a half extra for free because I you know what I stole from you when I did that. Please forgive me. That's the heart of someone who wants to stay in right standing before God. They say, Lord, I will do whatever it takes. And then lastly, we're going to see not only does sin produce separation and confession produces restoration, but we're going to find that our sin will find us out and that God alone is judge and you can hide no sin from Him. Maybe you're here tonight and you think nobody knows about your sin. Well, maybe nobody else knows, but God knows. Amen? And you can't get over on God. I don't care how sharp you think you are, you ain't getting over on God. And the sad part is that you're missing out on the blessing of walking in a, a close relationship with the creator of the universe. That's what you are created for. And you're not going to have joy trying to find it in anything else that the world has to offer. So let's begin in verse 11. And again, the passage is going to describe something called the trial of jealousy. This is very interesting. It would be interesting if they still had this today. Look at verse 11. And the Lord spoke to Moses and said, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, If any man's wife goes astray and behaves unfaithfully toward him, And a man lies with her carnally, and is hidden from the eyes of her husband, and is concealed that she has defiled herself, and there was no witness against her, nor was she caught. Okay, this woman goes out and she commits adultery, and she thinks nobody knows. Now this law is written for two reasons. One, to deter adultery, because wait till you see the process they went through, if the husband even thought maybe she committed adultery. What was the penalty for adultery? In the Old Testament. Stoning. Can you imagine if they stoned adulterers today? I think it was J. Vernon McGee that said, man, just be dry, you just couldn't even get through town. There'd be so many piles of boulders, right? Everybody would have to be driving a four-wheel drive to get one side of town to the other. And it's so sad, but that was the penalty. But in this case, it's called the, the trial of jealousy, and it's where they, they, the husband might suspect. The woman thinks, oh, I got away with it. Nobody knows. I'm totally clean. The woman goes astray. She be, behaves unfaithfully toward her husband. Her sin is hidden. No witnesses. No one found out. But you know what? Faithfulness in marriage is the foundation stone of, a, of, of every society. You know what? When you start tearing down marriage, you start tearing down the nation. You know that the Bible says God talks more about marriage than He does the church. This is why we don't take it lightly when they're talking about having same-sex marriage. Is that okay, you guys? Why not? Oh, you guys do homophobes, man. just Get over it, man. Give them the same rights. They, you know, I saw a guy in the news saying that. You know, Ten years from now, we're going to look back and laugh that we ever debated about that. You know, it's kind of like, you know, I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. And the sad thing is that we don't fear God anymore. And you know what? Every great nation that has fallen, Rome... The Greeks, do you know when they fell? When homosexuality ran rampant. That's a fact. That's a historical fact. Go look it up. They fall. Rome fell. The Greeks fell. Why? Because they, they no longer esteemed the God-ordained marriage. One man for one woman for a lifetime. And so we see that, that God's got a command against that, and He's warning that they're, they're just getting out of bondage. And He says, guys, I want to make this really clear. I want you to understand this. And so, this is the law of jealousy. Now, in the church today, I want to encourage you guys, when we take our marriage vows, that's exactly what it is. It's a vow. Amen? It's a promise before God. Divorce is not a word I ever use in my house. It's not a word you don't use. That's this. And marriage is a choice. Amen? Love is a choice. You know those, those butterflies you have right now, those you are courting, or if you're the... the you know, you're newlywed, you know, oh yeah, yeah blah, blah, right, and those are wonderful, and I, and I still have wonderful feelings for my wife, but the, there's times when, you know, the butterflies aren't there, and you just have to choose to love your spouse, amen, it's a choice, it's a decision, I am going, I've made a vow, I'm going to love her, I'm going to esteem her greater than myself, And so we see here that what happens is because we get selfish, because, ooh, the butterfly feeling went away, I'm going to go find someone, oh, I'll get the butterfly feeling again. Well, guess what? That'll last for a couple months, and you're going to have to go get it again, right? And you're just going to flutter around from place to place, until you drop dead of a sexually transmitted disease, right? And that's what happens. You just flutter around. And the reality, he's just making it very clear. Guys, understand. I want you to see this really clearly. And so what did they have to do? So the woman thinks she's gotten away with it, but look what happens in her husband. But if the spirit of jealousy comes upon him, how many husbands do you think don't figure it out at some point that something's up with their wife? At some point they're going to go, wait a minute, something's not right here. This is, something's not right here. Now the husband says, if there's a spirit of jealousy, he becomes jealous of his wife who has defiled herself. For if a spirit of jealousy comes upon him and becomes jealous of his wife, although she's not defiled herself, then the man shall bring his wife to the priest. He shall bring the offering required for her, one-tenth of an ephah of barley meal. He shall pour it, no oil on it, no frankincense on it, because it is a grain offering of jealousy, an offering of remembering for bringing iniquity to remembrance. So what does he do? He brings in an offering and he brings her to the priest. That means he's bringing her to the to the front of the tabernacle so he brings his wife in now who can see this everyone you know what i think she's been cheating on me Ooh. whoa okay now watch what happens here this is heavy right i mean can you imagine you think this might have been a deterrent to any woman who was thinking about cheating on her husband because everybody can see it happening and she gets brought in and she's standing there and I want you to quickly, we're going to go through this quickly, watch the steps of what, what happens as they're checking to find out if this woman has committed adultery. God doesn't take this lightly at all. And watch what happens here. So he brings his wife in and it might even be that she didn't do anything wrong. So one of two things is going to happen. Either her sin is going to find her out and the judgment is going to be heavy or the husband is going to find out that his wife has been faithful to him, which will bring restoration to their marriage, a renewal of their trust for one another, and they can, And she'll probably be very upset with him. And then they can, because she had to stand in front of the tabernacle and wait till you see the list of stuff she has to do. All right? So let's go to these, all right? And we've got Thanksgiving tomorrow. I'll go this quick. Verse 16. So it says there, And the priest shall bring her near and set her before the Lord. So who is the one that's going to judge her? The Lord. The Lord is going to be the one that's going to judge her. The priest doesn't judge her himself. Again, she's, they're brought up to the entrance of the tabernacle. Everybody's standing there. They're all watching. So the first step is they bring her before the Lord. Step number two, verse 17. It says, Then the priest shall take holy water. That just means water out of the, the, um, the basin, right? It's water that was in. Uh, why am I st- vapor locking? What's the name of the basin? I'm, I'm vapor locking. What is it? You know, the, the laver. There it is. Sorry. Totally escaped me. The laver, the bronze laver, he would go and take water out of the bronze laver, which is right before, right, the entrance to the tabernacle, right? They come in, you've got the bronze altar, you've got the bronze laver. He would take water out of there that was set aside for holy use. And then it says there in verse 17, and he would take that holy water and put it into an earthen vessel and then take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it into the water. Now, when I read this, I thought, okay, you've got holy water, an earthen vessel, and dust. Let me tell you that's a picture of. I'll give you one guess. Who is it always a picture of? Okay, all right. Water, in the Bible, living water is a picture of the Holy Spirit. What is water a picture of? What is it? God's Word. Who's the Word? Jesus Christ, okay? earthen vessel. What does it say? It says God came, right? Jesus came in an earthen vessel. He became flesh, right? He became flesh. And it's filled with water, the word, a picture of his deity, and it's pil- filled also with dust. What was man created from? Dust of the ground. 100% man, 100% God in an earthen vessel. Man, I love that. Isn't that good? And so We see here it's a picture of Jesus Christ, right? Because He is the one who judges sin. He is the one. He is the one on Judgment Day that will be the judge. And so they take this earthen vessel and they put water in it, holy water from the library, and then they take inside of that water and they put dust into it. Verse 18. So they got this dusty water. Verse 18. Then the priest shall stand, uh, stand the woman before the Lord and uncover the woman's head. Now, the Bible says a woman's head is her hair is her what? It's her covering and it's also her crowning what? It's her crowning glory. Remember when the woman undid her hair and took the alabaster flask of, of, of fine perfume and spread it on Jesus' feet and washed, her, washed His feet with her hair? It's say, not my glory, but your glory and women didn't do that so when they were doing that she was uncovering and removing her glory she was coming before him and removing all pretense and saying i'm willing to stand here before you and her glory was completely removed he loosened her hair and at the same time he would also put the offering into her hands the grain offering look at verse 18 it says uncover the woman's head and put the offering for remembering in her hands which is the grain offering of jealousy and the priest shall have in his hand the bitter water that brings a curse she so has got that earthen vessel with that bitter water in it, and he's holding his hand. She's uncovered her hair. Verse 19, "...and the priest shall put her under oath and say to the woman, "'If no man has lain with you, and you have not gone astray to uncleanness while being under your husband's authority, be free of the bitter water which brings a curse.'" But if you have gone astray, well under your husband's authority, and if you have defiled yourself as some man other than your husband has lain with you, then the priest shall put the woman under the oath of the curse. And he shall say to the woman, the Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people when the Lord makes your thigh rot and your belly swell. That would be consequences, right? Right? Verse 22, and may this water that causes the curse go into your stomach and make your belly swell and your thigh rot, then the woman shall say, Amen, and so be it. Whoa. So he says, he brings her in front, they take the hair down, right? He's got the stuff in his hand. He makes the, he's going to take the offering and make the offering, and he's going to hand her this water in just a moment. And he says, when you drink this, if you've done nothing, then you have nothing to worry about. But if you've sinned against your husband, when you drink this, your thigh is going to rot and your belly is going to swell, which means you will never have children and your body is going to, de- is going to be major consequences if you're not stoned to death before it's over. And the woman has to say, amen. Now, how many, if you had done this, if you had, if you had committed, how would you be feeling right about now? You're standing here, everybody's watching right? Your hair's uncovered, which is, in a, is a shameful thing, right, to them. And she's standing there, hair's uncovered, her husband's standing over there, not happy with her. The guy's holding the bitter water, and she's got to go, amen, yeah, so be it. Okay, yeah, belly, belly swell. Oh, man. Thy rot. Thigh rot. Right? So be it. Amen. I think confession would take place right about here. If I was wrong, oh, you know what? I don't even have to, I did it, right? I mean, I would confess, and so we see her, look at verse 23. She has to say, Amen, and so be it. Verse 23. It says, Then the priest shall write these curses in a book, and he shall scrape them off into the bitter water. This is interesting, that he takes a, a book out, or a scroll, which is probably more accurate, and he writes down the curse that will come to her. And then next to the curse, he would write her name, and then next to that, he would write, Amen, Amen, that she, she agreed this curse was coming. Then he would take it and he would scrape all the ink off and scrape it into this earthen vessel that has the dust and the water and the, and the ink in it now. This is a, quite a, a, a drink here, right? And he's going to hand this to her. Now it's interesting that she takes this and they scrape it off and put it into the water. Again, if you're at this ceremony, this would probably do it if you were guilty. But the woman is willing to move on and to take it. Then it says in verse 24, Says and she shall make the woman drink. He shall make the woman drink the water that brings a curse, and the water that that uh, the curse shall enter into her and become bitter. Then the priest shall take a grain offering of jealousy from the woman's hand and shall wave the offering before the Lord and bring it to the altar. So what happens in verse twenty four is it says the woman has to drink the water. So she's drinking this water with dust and ink in it, and she drinks it. And it says it shall become bitter. Now, the bitterness is not talking about the taste. It's talking about the result in her body if she's outside of God's will. Again, truly a bitter pill to swallow. And if she's guilty, the consequences will be physical barrenness. Her body will begin to rot. She'll have a broken marriage. She'll have the scorn of all of Israel. And she'll potentially be stoned to death. Now, if she didn't do anything, she'll drink it. People will be watching her and nothing will happen. And then there will be vindication, and she will be restored to her marriage after she hits her husband over the head with a club, right? Thanks for, oh, that was, that was, I really appreciate you dragging me out in front of all of Israel to do that. That was great. Thanks, right? I mean, right? That wouldn't be good. So I'm thinking you better be sure, buddy. But, so he brings her out there, and she drinks the water, and now they're going to wait and see, and who is it that's going to judge her? It's the Lord. It's God. Now, this reminds me again of the cross because the cross is one of two things depending on which side of it you're on. It's either the place of redemption that you look on when you take communion and you say, thank you, Lord, for the work you did on the cross or you look at the cross and it's a place of judgment and you say, man, I don't want that on the wall. I don't want that in courthouses. I want them all taken down because it convicts me. The cross is either a place of redemption or a place of judgment. What have he done with the cross? What have he done with Jesus Christ? He did the work for you. We're almost done. Verse 25 and 26. says so the priest shall take the grain offering, and he takes that and brings it to the altar. And the priest shall take a handful of the offering as its memorial portion, burn it on the altar, and afterward make the woman drink the water. So he takes the offering, he brings it before the Lord. Before, remember, he said there was no oil on the offering, and there was no frankincense. No oil, because the oil is a representation of what? Holy Spirit and frankincense makes it a sweet smelling aroma. This was not an offering to the Lord of, of uh, asking for forgiveness. it was an offering before God for him to reveal the truth about this woman's sinfulness okay so it wasn 't a sweet smelling aroma to him right it wasn 't a, a peace offering or a love offering of any kind verse twenty six excuse me verse twenty seven it says when he has made her drink the water, then it shall be if she has defiled herself and behaved unfaithfully toward her husband, that the water that brings a curse will enter her and become bitter, and her belly will swell, her thigh will rot, and the woman shall become a curse among her people. Again, basically, her life would be over at that point. Verse 28 says, But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, then she shall be free and may conceive children. So if she was guilty, the results would prove it, and if she was not guilty, the results would prove it. The Word of God, that water that she drinks, it can either be a cursing to you or a blessing for you. It can be something that directs your life or it can be something that reveals your sinfulness and your need for a Savior. Just like the cross, so too the Word of God. Verse, Last three verses. Verse 29. This is the law of jealousy, when a wife, while under her husband's authority, goes astray and defiles herself. For when the spirit of jealousy comes upon a man and he becomes jealous of his wife, then he shall stand the woman before the Lord and the priest shall execute... All this law upon her. Again, the law of jealousy would bring the truth to light. Your sin will find you out every single time. You may get away with it for years in your own mind, but at some point, ultimately, we're going to stand before Almighty God. But usually, your sin will find you out before you get to heaven. Amen? Usually, the consequences are going to come sooner. And the last verse says, that then the man shall be free from iniquity, but the woman shall bear her guilt. I want you to see that an adulterous wife does not impute guilt to her husband, and an adulterous husband does not impute guilt to the wife. Sometimes people feel guilty because the other person committed adultery. Hey, that's their sin between them and the Lord, it has harmed your marriage, okay? And there's consequences that you're going to have to struggle with, but the sin is not imputed to you. I want to make one one last thing I want to show you here that when I was studying tonight, I find this interesting in the New Testament. There was a woman brought to Jesus who had been caught in adultery. Where was Jesus when she was brought to Him? Who knows? Not the city, where was He? He was in a tabernacle, temple. Okay? And they brought her to Jesus, and the woman caught in adultery was standing with the Lord. Now again, we've already quantified the fact that the earthen vessel is a picture of Christ, right? The water, the dust... Now what's interesting, they brought her before him and he didn't have her drink a glass of water to find out whether or not she committed adultery. Because he's God and he already knows. And weren't there some accusers that said, we found her in the very act? And what were they doing? They're holding stones to stone her. And I love this. I want you to see the picture of grace. Because he didn't curse her. And he didn't make her belly swell and her thigh rot. Instead, he reached down and wrote in the what? In the sand or the dust. Isn't that interesting? He wrote in the dust, instead of making her drink the dust, he wrote in the dust, the sins, I believe, of the men who had come to accuse her, and all of her accusers went away, and what did he say to her? Woman, go and what? Sin no more. Where are your accusers? Your sin is forgiven you. That's the God of grace that we serve, amen? In the Old Testament, she'd have been drinking the dust. And now that Jesus has come, and his, He's a God of grace and mercy, He writes in the dust against those who've accused her. Instead of her drinking the dust, He forgives her because He sees the repentance in her heart, and He says, go and sin no more. That's the new covenant, you guys. Amen? We're, we serve a God of grace and mercy and forgiveness. But shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. So be holy, for I am holy. Sin produces separation, Confession produces restoration. Your sin will find you out. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You the clear application that it has for our lives even today. And Father, I just pray, Lord, that the hidden sin that we may have in our lives, Lord, that we would hide it no longer. That, Father, we come before You and confess it to You. And Lord, if need be, we find brothers or sisters to keep us accountable, Lord, for the things that we struggle with, that they might hold up our hands. Father, we want to walk in a right relationship with You. We don't want to have anything that hinders our fellowship with You, that hinders our prayer life, that hinders us in being able to minister to others. Lord, we know we're going to sin, but Father, I pray that when we sin, there will be brokenness over our sin and a heart of repentance that would come quickly. So Father, we love You, we, we praise You, and we just thank You for Your Word. May it minister to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. God bless you. Come on, stand up, we'll close a worship song.